Hello, thriller and adventure fans, and welcome back to episode two of James Lindholm's Into a Canyon Deep, the first of the Chris Black action adventure series. I'm Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on Into a Canyon Deep, just before Joe Rothberg met his untimely demise while dumping toxic waste in the Carmel Submarine Canyon, he sent off a package to marine biologist Chris Black. When later Chris and his team of scientists used a remotely operated vehicle to explore the deep underwater canyon, they didn't find any toxic waste down there. Or did they? Kevin O'Grady seemed to think so. Then, when he came to shore to meet with donors in Pebble Beach, Chris passed by as a mysterious body was removed from the water. Nine. Chris leaned back in his chair and loosened his tie. He'd been up since dawn, and now that the primary activities of the day were completed, he let exhaustion roll over him like the incoming fog. He was contemplating the relative merits of going for a run or going to sleep when Michelle returned to the table. I think that went well. The deans were complimentary when I walked them back to the car. I'll follow up with them in the next couple of days to do the ask. The ask referred to the actual request for money. Despite his general disdain for the development office gatekeepers, Chris was always grateful that he wasn't responsible for the ask. What's their story again? In the back of his mind, Chris was wondering about the curiously personal line of questioning the deans had taken. I know the basics from your briefing documents, but how did you and they connect? Well, they're alums like Morris, and they both gave generously to the new library and to our sports programs, so they have a history of giving. Sure, but how did CMEX get on their radar screen? Did Peter organize this? Actually, now that you mention it, I think they contacted us about meeting you specifically. That's why Peter was so adamant that you get off the boat to be at this meeting. You're the star. Huh. Well, I hope I gave them a good show. I'm certain of it, Michelle replied, with her characteristic enthusiasm. She would be complimentary, Chris thought even if he'd sat at the table, pooped his pants, and went to sleep in front of the donors. Well, I've got to get back to the office. Michelle got up. Thanks again for your help and for all the good work you do on behalf of the university. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for pulling this together. After Michelle had left, Chris spent another 15 minutes watching the fog roll in. Finally motivated to move by the rapidly declining air temperature, he decided it was time to go home and began to walk back to his truck. He was parked down below the lodge on a side street used primarily by the service staff and by employees of the golf course. A tall hedge separated the road from the grounds of the lodge. As he approached the opening in the hedge closest to his truck, Chris could clearly smell cigarette smoke. Must be staff on break, he assumed, or perhaps a golfer sneaking a smoke before heading out to the back nine. But as he came through the hedge and his truck came into sight, he saw that the smoke emanated from two scruffy-looking gentlemen. One was looking in the driver's side window. 
while the other was carelessly sitting on the hood of his Land Rover. Yes, Chris was fit, and swimming in particular kept his upper body strong. But as he approached the two idiots sitting on his hood, Chris was once again grateful for the many beatings he used to take from his friends. Dating back to Carmel Middle School, E. Mack and Jace Hamilton, as well as Tony Thornburg, had literally beaten each other to a pulp on a weekly basis while sparring full-contact Kempo Karate. Kempo, with roots in both China and Japan, was essentially street fighting. Street fighting with style, their instructor used to say. Sparring was done with pads, but unlike traditional American boxing, pads in karate were intended to protect the wearer, not the recipient of the blows. So with adrenaline pumping through their then-invincible bodies, the friends beat the hell out of each other in bouts that usually didn't end until someone's lip or nose was bleeding. At least a bit. Chris was of the opinion that formal training in self-defense, with highly choreographed scenarios played out in tightly controlled environments, wasn't particularly useful unless one had direct experience with actual assailants trying to do bodily harm. There were certain reactions that simply didn't develop unless survival required them. In the handful of instances since grad school in which Chris had been called on to defend himself or his colleagues while abroad, the instincts derived from those sparring days had served him well. The guy sitting on the truck ground out his cigarette butt on the shiny green hood. He was wearing weather-worn black-and-white checkered slip-on vans, which Chris remembered being big in the early 80s. His buddy just stood there, one hand in the pocket of his acid-washed jeans. Who are these guys? What decade am I dealing with here? He wondered. Neither vans nor acid looked to be particularly worthy opponents. They were both Caucasian, which probably ruled them out as gang members from nearby Salinas, and neither appeared to emphasize fitness in his daily routine. There was a general puffiness about the two of them, skin bulging out over the necks of their jackets, paunches sagging over their belts. But as everyone knows, it's never wise to judge a book by its cover. Acid, the taller of the two, took a step closer and said, We want to know what you're doing out on that boat. He spoke with a dull, thick tongue and looked out from under heavy lids, vacant eyes suggesting to Chris that there was little going on upstairs. Excuse me? Chris asked. This wasn't what he had expected. Only scientists cared about what scientists were doing offshore, but these two didn't fit the profile of budding marine ecologists. Vans jumped into the verbal fray with, You heard him. What the fuck are you doing out there? He pointed in the general direction of the ocean. Vans spoke more definitively. That is to say, he formed a couple of coherent sentences and enunciated them with a gusto his buddy lacked. A golf cart carrying four Hispanic females in white service staff uniforms rolled past. Chris hoped that one of them would sound the alarm. Neither of his antagonists seemed to care that they were being observed. Perhaps they were more stupid than they appeared. If Chris could drag this on a bit further, perhaps the authorities would have time to respond. But then again, what exactly would the maids have had to report? Three guys talking? There was probably no help coming anytime soon. No, he was on his own. He put the pelican case on the ground, keeping his eye on both of the guys in the process. Then he put his hand up to his ear, mimicking a phone call, and said, 911, please send an ambulance. Sorry, make that two ambulances to the lodge at Pebble Beach. There are two badly dressed men bleeding profusely in the parking lot, multiple broken bones. 
The cogs were evidently turning for the two guys, albeit slowly, as they looked at each other, then back at Chris. Perhaps they didn't get enough sarcasm in their daily diets. Ah, fuck this, Vans opined. Then he launched himself at Chris. Chris maintained eye contact with Vans and pumped his arms slightly as though preparing to throw a punch. This feint conformed to Vans' expectations, so he was looking at Chris's fists rather than at his feet as Chris applied a front kick to the man's left knee. He knew that a lot was made of shots to the groin. They were effective if landed directly, but were much less so if they landed off-center. Even a quick twist or the lifting of a thigh by a recipient can significantly reduce the impact of a groin shot, leaving an unhappy but basically functional antagonist. A kick to the knee, however, is usually unexpected, is tougher to defend against, and can quickly hobble an adversary. Chris's kick landed squarely on Van's knee. Van's forward momentum from the charge kept him coming, but his lower left leg remained stuck in place briefly by the kick. The net effect of these opposing forces was a loud crack as Van's leg hyperextended and his knee collapsed. He uttered a wrenching, guttural scream as he fell to the pavement, immediately clutching his leg. Following through on his kick, Chris now had his back turned partially toward acid. Puffy though he may have been, Acid moved quickly and pushed Chris from behind with enough force to send him flying face first into the hedge. Chris had just enough time to get his left arm up to partially protect his face and absorb part of the impact. Nonetheless, he felt the branches of the hedge dig sharply into his face in a handful of locations, cutting deeply into the bridge of his nose. Acid didn't immediately follow up on his push, but instead he stood back, and pulled out a buck knife. The ease with which he flicked it out suggested at least some facility with the weapon. Vans lay on the ground between them and, having temporarily halted the steady string of expletives, was busy working himself into a sitting position. His left leg was splayed out in an unnatural 45-degree angle from his body. Watching Acid closely, Chris moved forward and stepped down forcefully on Vans' damaged knee, following immediately thereafter with a close-quarters sidekick to his head. He was taking no chances having two adversaries in the game. Acid took the opportunity to lunge directly at Chris with the knife in his right hand. Chris easily shifted to his right, grabbed Acid's arm, and let the man's own forward momentum pull him past Vans and into the hedge. At the same time, Chris stepped across the prostrate Vans to keep the body between himself and Acid. Out of the corner of his eye, Chris could see people coming down the street, but he didn't remove his eyes from Acid, who had now extracted himself from the hedge with a similar set of cuts on his face and neck. The knife was still in his hand. Hey, what's going on here? said a large red-faced man in a lime green golf shirt and blue slacks. What are you doing? He spoke with the air of authority that came, no doubt, from running a bank or perhaps a law firm. As he and his friend approached, Golf cleats clinking on the asphalt. Acid bolted around the Land Rover and out of sight down the road. Are you okay, buddy? The red-faced man asked Chris. Turning to his friend, he said, Scott, call the cops. 10. Two hours later, Chris was still at the scene. The Pebble Beach Company security had been the first to respond to the call. 
It turned out that the four maids had reported the altercation after all. The Monterey County Sheriff's Department was next on the scene. Two squad cars, as well as an ambulance, responded to the 911 call. The paramedics checked out vans while the sheriff's deputies first talked to Scott Leary and Harold Buxton III, the two golfers who had interrupted the fight, about what they saw. While this was going on, a second ambulance arrived, and the second set of paramedics began ministering to Chris, who looked considerably worse than he felt. The blood from his many facial cuts, most notably the cut on the bridge of his nose, had bled profusely, then dried, giving him the look of a poorly rendered B-movie zombie. Chris's nose would likely require a couple of stitches, which meant a trip to the community hospital of the Monterey Peninsula, affectionately known as CHOMP by locals. But before Chris was allowed to leave the scene, the deputies had to ask a few questions, under the close supervision of Harold and Scott, both of whom turned out to be lawyers. For all the jokes about lawyers he'd told over the years, and for all Chris's rants about the declining state of humanity, it was heartening to see Harold and Scott rally to Chris's side without a question. He greatly appreciated it and would have to thank them later. Chris recounted his experience to the deputies and his impromptu legal team as the adrenaline slowly left his body. Most of the questions they had to ask, Chris couldn't answer. He'd had no idea where these guys came from or why they had singled him out. He joined the two lawyers in giving a description of Acid, who was reportedly seen running through the lodge grounds after the altercation, but had yet to be apprehended. When Chris was finally allowed to leave, his legal team expanded their jurisdiction to include chauffeuring. Harold drove Chris in his Mercedes, while Scott followed closely in Chris's Land Rover. Chomp was a beautiful modern building, designed by Edward Durrell Stone and nestled within the pines at the top of the hill that bisected the peninsula. Dating back to 1929, it had started as a 30-bed clinic for metabolic difficulties and had subsequently evolved into a 250-bed medical center by the 1960s. The building was interwoven masterfully with the landscape by sheets of glass with views of forest waterfalls. All in all, it wasn't a bad place to go, even for someone like Chris who had developed a pathological dislike for hospitals and medical offices of all types. Harold drove through Pebble Beach, crossing into Pacific Grove at the gate marking the end of 17-mile drive, and followed Highway 68 up the hill to the hospital. He dropped Chris off at the emergency room entrance, walking him inside to make sure that he was helped before returning to his car to park. Harold's ministrations were unnecessary, as Chris's appearance quickly attracted the attention of the emergency room staff. He was ushered into an empty room and handed a hospital gown to put on. He obeyed, sitting on the bed to protect his now-exposed behind. The suturing of the cut was a quick affair relative to the interminable face-washing that preceded it. While no stranger to discomfort, Chris wasn't a fan of being prodded by strangers for extended periods of time. About the time that the stitching was complete, Harold and Scott filed into the room, followed closely by Jace Hamilton, whom Chris hadn't seen in a couple of years. The last Chris had heard, Jace was an investigator with the Monterey County Sheriff's Department, and the brown and khaki uniform he now wore suggested that was still the case. He was the same height as Chris. His red hair was cut shorter than the last time Chris had seen him, but otherwise he looked fit and the perpetual crease between his eyebrows projected a serious disposition. In sum, he looked the part of a sheriff. Like Chris and Mac, Jace, too, was a product of Carmel-by-the-Sea. 
On the first day of second grade at Carmel River School, Chris and Mac had run into Jace as they walked to school. After establishing each other's bona fides, mainly enthusiasm for Star Wars, Tolkien, and the beach, they'd become fast friends. While the three had gone their separate ways for a while and hadn't been together much over the past several years, old conversations were effortlessly resumed whenever they met again. So, given a few years to your own devices, this is the plan you come up with to meet nurses? Jace queried, obviously trying not to smile. Sophisticated Dr. Black. Harold and Scott perked up at this. Of course, with a face like that, I suppose that meeting people would present some challenges. Jace added. I was indeed angling for a nurse, but with you back on the scene, in uniform no less, and packing heat, I think my man crush has been rekindled. Come on over and give me a big kiss. Jake crossed the room and gave Chris a vigorous handshake. It's been too long, Jace, Chris said sincerely. Life has just gotten in the way, I guess. I'm sorry. Not a problem. We're all going light speed. The peninsula seems like a pretty small place most of the time but it's obviously large enough to keep us all busy without tripping over one another. Excuse me, Chris, Harold interjected, stepping toward the bed. We'll take off now and let you and Deputy Hamilton catch up. I've left my card with him so that he can follow up with me later. Let me know if there's anything else I can do. I can't thank you enough. Chris hopped out of bed to shake the hands of both Harold and Scott. The two of you probably saved me from some real trouble, and your help afterward was beyond the call of duty. Well, I'm not sure we saved you from anything. You seem to be doing just fine on your own. After Harold and Scott left the room, Jace pulled up a chair and sat next to the bed. He took out a leather notepad and looked at Chris. So, what can you tell me that you haven't already relayed to the deputies? They asked what I was doing on the boat, Jace. Why would they do that? What possible interest could they have in our exploration of the canyon? Chris stood up. Though most of the adrenaline from the fight had gone, he was still far too excited to sit. All interesting questions, and we'll get to those. But before we do that, tell me about your morning prior to the encounter. 11. We were offshore on the McGregor all night last night, and all of the previous day, Chris explained. The first ROV dive was just after sunrise. I came ashore at Stillwater Cove a little afternoon, grabbed my truck, and went home to shower and change. Then I drove over to the lodge around 2.30. As he said this, he stopped pacing, and a series of irritating realizations started coming to him. So you parked your truck down at Stillwater while you were out? Jace asked. Was anyone on shore aware of when you were planning to come back in? Anyone at the yacht club? No. We've got a fairly casual relationship with the club. As long as we keep the number of vehicles to a maximum of three, they let us park our cars there while we're offshore. There was no reason to brief them on our plan, and I was the only member of the team to leave a vehicle there this trip. Everyone else got on board in Monterey. So, it's likely that the assailants picked you up when you came on shore. How they came to be there at that precise moment remains to be seen. They must have trailed you to the lodge and decided to approach you there for some reason rather than at your house. The floater. They must have been on the Stillwater Pier watching the recovery of the dead body from the cove. We came into the dock at the same time that the body was being removed. The pier was packed with people, so they could have easily blended in there. When we showed up at the dock, 
it would have been pretty clear that we had just come from the McGregor. I was wearing a bright yellow jacket with CMAX emblazoned on the back. Perhaps they knew I was from the boat, but they didn't know who I was. So, they decided to follow you to see what they could see, Jace suggested. Exactly. We have the cell phone for the guy you took out, and we'll be able to trace any numbers he's called. He's pretty messed up, by the way. What'd you do to him? Not as much as I would have liked to. Chris moved to the dresser to put his shirt back on. They know where I live. Actually, now that I think about it, my neighbor mentioned two guys in a black truck had stopped by my house several times in the past week. I laughed when she suggested they were casing the joint. But now it seems pretty clear that they were. I sent the deputy over there just before I came into the room. He should be reporting in soon. Seems like the McGregor is being watched. No idea why, but depending on how crazy these guys are, there could be bigger problems. Yes, we should call and alert them to the situation. We need to figure out what's going on to understand the threat level. Tell me more about what you're doing out there. Chris spent about 30 minutes describing the current project. The overall goal was to better understand how organisms were distributed along deep water canyons, from deep water to shallow. This type of information would ultimately underlie natural resource management efforts along the coast. The team was collecting this information by using the ROV to transect the Carmel Canyon at numerous points. Chris drew an improvised map of the canyon on Jace's notepad. Along the base of the canyon, there were multiple X's. Here's the canyon. Each of these X's marks the starting point of an ROV transect. We simply fly the ROV up the canyon wall, collecting continuous video and taking thousands of digital still photographs. When we're done with all these lines, we should have more than 18 hours of video to analyze back in the lab. Chris stood with his arms behind his head and looked out the window. He winced slightly as his cut nose reminded him it was there. I'll tell you what, I don't think our project has anything to do with today's attack. Just doesn't make sense. I'm with you, no offense, but fish swimming around on rocks isn't likely to make many criminals super motivated to get involved. Unless it's a case of wrong place, wrong time. What do you mean? Well, don't you take pictures in that ROV of yours? Chris nodded. So, you may have seen something the bad guys, whoever they may be, don't want anyone to see. Hmm. We haven't noticed any fishing gear, but there's been a great deal of fishing activity out there historically. And the fishing community isn't fond of scientists. The guys who attacked me didn't look like fishermen exactly, but who knows? Either way, the question is, what's down there? You tell me. Tomorrow morning looks like a wash based on the weather forecast. Too windy. Chris said. But the wind is supposed to lay down a bit tomorrow night, so Thursday I'm going back out to find out. Looking at Jace, Chris smiled. Do you get seasick? 12. Daryl English was glued to CNN when Kevin O'Grady came in to interrupt. For the last 24 hours, the major story on all the networks had been the capture of mobster James Whitey Bulger. Bulger had run a crime syndicate in South Boston that included several crooked FBI agents. When an FBI agent alerted him to a coming indictment, Bulger fled and hadn't been caught for the ensuing 18 years. Until now. He was captured without incident in a small apartment in Santa Monica. 
Bulger was an old school mobster, the CNN talking head said, because he participated directly in the more than 21 murders attributed to him. In one of those murders, the victim was literally severed in half by the rain of bullets fired at him while he was in a phone booth. In Bulger, Daryl English saw a kindred spirit. Ruthless was a term regularly applied to Daryl during his early years, when people who knew him still felt safe enough to speak of him in anything other than glowing terms. He was the product of a broken and dysfunctional home, an all-too-familiar story in modern America. Xavier, an abusive alcoholic father, had visited his rage on Daryl and other family members regularly and with impunity, sending him to the emergency room at Chomp on more than one occasion. His initially willful mother had lost both her will and her independence under her husband's crushing blows and couldn't protect Daryl from harm. Eventually, she joined her husband in a nightly descent into drunkenness, frequently before the dinner hour. The beatings stopped precipitously in the following year when Xavier English was crushed under the engine block of the Pontiac El Camino he was working on in the garage. The cursory police investigation concluded that he'd been the victim of an unfortunate accident. Daryl's mother knew better, for she'd seen the look in her son's eyes. Now at the age of 48, gray-haired but still built like a refrigerator, Daryl owned tire stores in Seaside, Marina, and Salinas, a Subway Sandwiches in Monterey, and several properties in Carmel Valley where selected activities could be conducted out of the public eye. Daryl turned toward Kevin O'Grady as he got up off the office couch. He was wearing slacks and a crisp button-down shirt, which somehow didn't get wrinkled as he spent the day watching CNN. I guess I'm old school, too. Kevin had no idea what to make of that comment, but he went along with it as he did with so much else that had gone on out there. In the deep, uncharted waters of his inner self, Kevin knew he wasn't deserving of the myth that surrounded him. Sure, he was tough but not crazy tough like Daryl English. Daryl simply existed on a different playing field than everyone else. He was basically fucking crazy. He would be calm, joking about something one minute, and in the next, he'd switch on the crazy. His eyes would light up with a look that made even the toughest guys Kevin had known want to run away. Daryl was Hannibal Lecter crazy. Over the past several years, Daryl had done some nasty shit most of which had been attributed to Kevin, and Daryl actually encouraged that misattribution. It pleased him for some odd reason that Kevin didn't understand. We've got the Georges out here. You asked to be told when they arrived? Yes, I did. Let's go make another part of that legend yours, Daryl said, jovially patting Kevin on the back. They walked out of the wood-paneled outbuilding located at the rear of a large McMansion and down a short path through a eucalyptus grove. Eucalyptus, though an invasive species in this country, were commonplace along the California coastline. Kevin had heard stories that the trees were originally planted a few hundred years ago by Spaniards, seeking to capture the market for ship masts. Unfortunately, the trees grew too crookedly to serve as useful mast material, and the scheme failed, both financially and ecologically. At the edge of the grove was a vast open area that once held local, native trees and wildlife, but of late had served as a staging ground for the dumping of toxic waste. One of the disadvantages of California's growing environmental awareness was the ever stricter regulation of waste disposal in any form. 
It wasn't easy anymore for an honest criminal to run a profitable business with agencies like the State Environmental Protection Agency, the Coastal Commission, and the National Marine Sanctuary dictating what could be dumped and where. Agencies never seemed to let up in the ongoing game of whack-a-mole with would-be dumpers. But if they did, citizen organizations now abounded throughout the state to monitor and report even the slightest infraction. Daryl English had first encountered this fact as the owner of several automotive repair shops around the peninsula. Burdened by the logistics of legally disposing of used engine oil and transmission fluid, he began to look for alternatives. It was then that the man his wife called the Sugar Daddy offered a way out. The way out involved joining forces with a much broader group of illegal dumpers who had banded together to defeat the system and make a profit while doing it. With no suitable spot to dump the waste on land, the group opted for dumping it offshore. Daryl had organized the use of the Lizzie J. Several years back, the Donadio family, longtime residents and fishermen along the peninsula, had sold the boat to Daryl. No one knew that he purchased a fishing boat and the associated trawling permit, largely because he did so through one of his many private contacts built up over the past 20 years. The economy was bad and the price was right, so no one asked too many questions. Daryl was also the brains behind disguising the barrels as fishing gear. This made it much easier for them to load the vessel in Monterey for the multiple dumping runs they had made in the past month. The Georges were on their knees, neither looking defiant nor depressed when Daryl and Kevin arrived. Though Kevin didn't have the vocabulary to express it, he would have thought that they appeared resigned to their fate. Their fate, such as it was, was now in Daryl's hands. The couple had once been a reliable source of information for Daryl. Mr. George was a local attorney, and Mrs. George was a doctor. When their wayward son ran afoul of one of Daryl's employees, Daryl himself became involved. He spared the son in return for information from Mr. George and medicinal products from Dr. George. The son had died last year in a drug-related car crash down in Big Sur, but Daryl still felt obliged to lean on both of them, even though his primary source of leverage was now gone. In the second curious twist of fate in the past week, Chris Black's apparent discovery of the barrels being the first, it turned out that Dr. George was in practice with Dr. Henry Morris, Chris Black's potential patron. Daryl hated these types of surprises. He approached Mr. George first. I thought we had this all worked out a few months ago. If you go to the cops, or talk to anyone at all about my business, it won't end well for you. So what the fuck is going on? Mr. English, Mr. George replied in a calm demeanor that belied the circumstances. I have neither the will nor the subject matter expertise to relate anything substantive about you to the authorities. To be perfectly honest, since my son died, I couldn't give a shit about what you're doing. Ha, I appreciate that, and I actually believe you. Daryl looked like he'd just sucked on a lemon. But I can't say the same for your wife here. She's apparently been talking to her co-workers, and they in turn are talking with people whom they shouldn't be. I don't know what you're talking about, Dr. George said. I really don't. Let me explain it from my perspective, Doctor, Daryl said, circling the couple. One of your partners, Morris, I believe, Met on Tuesday with Dr. Chris Black, a marine scientist. I want to know what Black told Morris. Margaret Black's son? 
I've no idea what they would have been talking about. And if you knew anything about my practice or my partners, you'd know that I spend little time speaking to Henry Morris. Daryl pulled out a snub-nosed thirty-eight caliber revolver from the back of his belt. I expected you to say something like that. At this point, I have no time for any further discussion. And with that, he shot her in the head twice in quick succession. Her body collapsed next to her husband as the reports from the two shots briefly echoed around the surrounding hillside. Mr. George screamed in agony and rage. He tried to fling himself at Daryl, but from a kneeling position there was little he could do. Daryl shot him twice in the small of the back. Neither shot was lethal, but one of the two shattered Mr. George's spinal column. His torso writhed on the ground, but his lower extremities remained disturbingly motionless. English looked at Kevin with the crazy, vacuous stare that periodically gave Kevin pause. He briefly considered that he was about to be shot as well. I didn't expect to get any information out of either of them. They did talk out of turn, but I don't think it mattered. No, we need to clean up some loose ends around here in case this thing with black gets out of control. Okay. Kevin was relieved that he was going to live another day. What other loose ends are you talking about? Two thugs who had been standing by observing the action moved to pick up Mr. George. Leave him, Daryl said casually. I'd like to spend the day thinking about him out here, wiggling around in the dirt next to his dead wife. 13. The sheriff's deputy reported nothing unusual at Chris's house. He was apparently being chatted up by Mary, the neighbor, probably got an earful for his efforts, but perhaps received some homemade cookies as well. Jace spent a few more minutes collecting the details of Chris's encounter with Vans, a.k.a. Jerry Smith, who had by then been identified, and his buddy who hadn't. They made a plan to meet at the dock in Monterey at 5 a.m. on Thursday morning, assuming no change in the weather. Then Jace went down to interview Smith in his guarded room one floor down, and Chris went home to play with Thig. Chris drove home uncharacteristically slowly, meandering along in the slow lane at a snail's pace. As he turned off the highway into Carmel, the sunny day had given way to the fog that frequently characterized the early summer months on the peninsula. Having grown up with the fog, Chris was generally unaffected by its gloomy presence. Indeed, for the years he'd spent in New England, he'd actually missed the fog a great deal. It had become a nostalgic vehicle for recalling his childhood years. Of course, all nostalgia aside, there was still the practical impact of the fog on daily life. This was why no self-respecting local was ever caught outdoors without at least a couple of clothing layers handy. Chris hadn't forgotten that he'd have a guest over for dinner that night. He'd been working with Abigail Wilson, a new lecturer in the marine science program at the CMEX, for months. But recently, after a series of chance encounters around town, a relationship had begun to develop and Abigail had become Abby to him. He'd been thinking about the evening for much of the day, until Acid, whatever his name might be, and Jerry Smith decided to make that earlier appointment. He'd been replaying the fight continually since it happened. He wasn't disappointed with his performance. He avoided serious injury and was able to stop at least one of the assailants. But his impulse following an event like this was to review and critique his own actions and frequently find those actions wanting. 
Chris recalled one of the few truly memorable talks he'd had with his dad years ago. They were riding in his dad's meticulously restored Mustang back to Carmel from the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. He'd just seen his father scare three potential thieves away. Though Andrew had been a fighter pilot in Vietnam, he'd also encountered hostiles in the ground when a helicopter he'd been riding in was shot down. So when three hoods had approached Chris and his dad in the parking lot outside the boardwalk, Andrew hadn't hesitated. He'd grabbed the guy closest to him by the neck and pinned him to the nearest car. Stuck in Andrew's vice grip, the guy had quickly conceded defeat. The other two had fled instantly at the first sign of resistance. The only point of hand-to-hand combat, Andrew had said to his young son as they drove south, is to put the other guy down as fast as possible. No posturing, no following some antiquated sense of fairness. I encourage you to never get into a fight, son. But if you do, don't fuck around. Chris had been shocked and impressed by his father's strategic use of the F-word, which at that young age still had a mystical quality to Chris. You remove the other guy from the fight however you can. You can sort out any other issues once the immediate danger is past. Dear old dad, Chris thought. Yet another vintage tidbit. But it had been a useful tidbit that Chris had internalized all those years ago. He was no doubt alive today because of that advice. He pulled up to Bruno's Market on Junipero Street to grab a few more vegetables and some fruit for dessert. Before going in, he first put on a fleece from the back of the truck to cover the bloodstains on his shirt. Bruno's was a classic mom-and-pop store. Higher prices than supermarkets and less stock, but there was something comforting about the narrow aisles, low light, and mural-painted interior walls. Perhaps, he thought, it was the timelessness of the archetype and increasing rarity. Chris nodded to several people he recognized as he moved through the aisles, but he wasn't in the mood to chat and was thankful that no one had attempted to strike up a conversation. Dr. Black? Chris was just coming up to the checkout aisle and realized his mind had been drifting. He turned to see a tall, gray-haired fellow smiling down at him. The man looked to be in his late sixties or early seventies. His clear brown eyes stared out from a face that had seen many moons pass but the pattern of his wrinkles suggested a man of good humor. The tufts of gray hair popping out from the sides of his head gave him the look of a mad scientist. Yes, sorry. I guess you caught me drifting there for a minute. How can I help you? Chris reached out to shake the man's hand. It was a solid grip. My name is Abe Levine. I'm an orthopedic chump, he replied, the hint of a foreign accent hanging in the air. But I'm also on the board of the Harrison Library, and we're looking for interesting speakers to participate in our annual lecture series. I've heard that you're doing some interesting work here in Carmel Bay. Any chance I can convince you to come and speak? That sounds great. I'm actually in the middle of a research cruise right now, and two more cruises follow immediately when this one's done, so it would probably have to wait until the fall. Levine nodded a little too frenetically, evidently not quite listening to much of what Chris had just said about his schedule. We were actually hoping that it could be sometime in the next three weeks. The summer is just getting started, but we've already had a number of inquiries about the series. I hope that I can get you to reconsider. Perhaps during a day you're not on the boat? Well, to be honest, Dr. Levine, even when I'm not in the middle of the field season, two to three weeks is generally not enough advance notice for something like this. I'll see how the next few days go and get back to you. Levine persisted. How about I schedule you for a week from Thursday? That should give you enough time to finish what you're doing in the bay and come speak to our group.
Chris looked at Levine. The guy was either slow, incredibly irritating, or a combination of both. Letting irritation creep into his voice, he replied, I'll tell you what. Give me your card, and I'll call you when I can, and we'll see if it can work out. Undeterred, Levine's mouth smiled in a way that his eyes didn't, and he made one last attempt. I, that is to say, we are interested in learning more about your work in the bay. I ask that you reconsider. He even stepped in a little closer, violating Chris's personal space. Look, Chris offered as he moved a bit closer himself. I've got to get going. Good luck with your lecture series. The guy finally seemed to be getting the message. But he didn't move, and Chris could see that the man was looking at his facial wounds. So he pointed to his face and offered, I'm having a little work done. How's it look? My apologies. You've caught me being incredibly impolite. I shouldn't have been staring. That's the least of your offenses, you obtrusive bastard, Chris thought. Aloud, he said, It's quite all right. I would stare at myself, too. I'm hideous. Certainly not. But in any event, I'll let you return to your shopping. It was nice to meet you, and I look forward to your presentation. Struggling with his desire to mash the guy's face into one of the pies in the dessert display, Chris just shook his head and turned away. He'd traveled enough to know that not everyone shared America's unique brand of interpersonal customs. This guy was probably walking away thinking Chris was the rude one. While waiting in line to check out, Chris focused on his forthcoming dinner with Abby. Though Chris knew it irritated her moral sensibility, the first impression Abigail Wilson made was usually a visual one before she'd a chance to impress with her intellect. She was a tall redhead with green eyes that effectively rendered Chris defenseless every time he looked into them. She was originally from Florida, and while the skin of most redheads seemed to tend toward pink, she somehow achieved an even tan that defied imagination. As an undergraduate in the history and philosophy of science at Yale University, Abby had needed to make a decision between competitive swimming and academics. While she ultimately opted for academics, Abby continued to swim daily and still competed in master's swim meets. After leaving New Haven, Abby had moved to Harvard for a master's degree in biological statistics. As Chris pulled out of Bruno's parking lot, he could see Levine watching him from inside the store as he spoke on a cell phone. He surveyed the traffic around him, looking for anomalous vehicles. Seeing none, but uncertain that meant they weren't there, he proceeded home. After showering, he took Thig for a quick walk along the hidden maze of trails that wound themselves through Carmel. A trail might last for several hundred yards and run through a lush field that wasn't visible from any road. Or it might be a brief, unremarkable right-of-way between two houses. Chris was sure that somewhere at City Hall there was a master list of all these trails, but he'd yet to see it. Back from the walk, he was deep into the preparation of his chicken pesto pasta extravaganza when the doorbell rang. This was the third time that he and Abby had dined together. Each meal had been great fun, punctuated both by interesting conversation and by many easy laughs about whether MIT and the university trumped Yale and Harvard or the reverse. Chris felt like the trajectory of the relationship was positive, but neither he nor Abby seemed in the mood to rush things. For his part, it had been some time since he'd been in a relationship and he wasn't anxious to revisit that state again until it felt right. Thig beat him to the door. She loved Abby. When Chris opened the door, 
Abby was already bent down to greet Thig first, then she rose to greet Chris. She was wearing a green dress that amplified her eyes and blue jean jacket. Her hair was pulled back in a half ponytail, the perfect juxtaposition of elegance and casualness in Chris's mind. Oh my God, Chris, what happened to you? You should see the other guy, he answered. He was serious, too. Seriously, did something happen on the boat? I didn't hear anything about it. She'd reached out to touch Chris's shoulder as she surveyed the damage to his face. He was momentarily incapacitated by her touch. Come on inside and I'll tell you the whole sordid story. As he stepped to the side to let her enter first, he added, It's quite a tale. He took the baguette and beer that Abby had brought and led her back to the kitchen with Fig in tow. Another promising sign, Chris thought. Wine and brie would have been fine, but an appreciation of the simpler pleasures of beer and bread boded well. Chris began the story as he finished preparing the meal. Abby cracked beers for both of them, then stood next to him in the kitchen, one bare foot propped against the counter behind her. Abby listened closely as they dined and only interjected a couple of times for clarification. A half an hour later, the meal was gone and the story had been told. While Chris washed the dishes, Abby sat at the bar and asked her follow-up questions. Are you sure you've never seen either of the guys before? It's possible, you know, that I'd seen them before someplace, but if so, it isn't coming to me. He'd thought about this already, but his memory for faces had failed to serve him in this instance. And you don't remember seeing them on the pier or in the parking lot when you came in this morning? Nope, but I wasn't scrutinizing the crowd at that point. To be honest, all the activity at the pier threw me off a bit. That place is usually the picture of tranquility. Right. Think about that. Here we are in Carmel-by-the-Sea, where nothing major ever happens. Remember the last issue of the pine cone that you showed me? The police log reported barking dogs and arguments over parking. We laughed about it, remember? The pine cone was a curious little weekly newspaper that was well-matched to its Carmel readership. Chris had a yellowed clipping from the paper from many years ago tacked up on his office wall. It chronicled an argument between neighbors in which one neighbor was convinced that his next-door neighbor had poisoned his plants because he could see it in her aura. Abby ventured further. Now we have a dead body mysteriously washing up in the cove and a violent attack on the same day. What are the chances that these two incidents are not related? 14. Chris agreed that Abby made an excellent point. But what was the connection between the two incidents? And if they were linked, how? Vans and Acid had wanted to know what he was doing out there in Carmel Bay, and an unidentified body had washed up in the bay on the same day. Did someone think he'd witnessed a murder? Had he, without noticing? His thoughts were interrupted by a loud knock at the front door. Chris glanced at his watch and then at Abby. 8.15. Who was coming by now? He found himself disappointed that his evening with Abby was being interrupted. Fig barked and took off for the door. As Chris followed after her, he could feel the adrenaline instantly surging through his sore muscles. Was someone following up on their failure from earlier in the day? He opened the door to find Mac and Gretchen standing on the doorstep like disturbingly old trick-or-treaters. Mac was wearing a black pullover sweatshirt, and Gretchen was wearing an orange fleece. Holy crap, you look terrible, Mac offered with great sensitivity. But you gotta let us in. 
he added while smiling and gesturing toward Gretchen. We have something interesting to show you. Gretchen, in turn, asked with a twinkle in her eye, Is Abby here? I believe I saw her car outside. They pushed past Chris and headed back to the kitchen like they owned the place. They didn't, although Chris would have loved some help with the mortgage. But they were there enough to know the lay of the land well. Chris stepped out onto the landing and looked down onto the darkened street. The lack of streetlights in Carmel left tree-lined streets like his in near-perfect darkness after sunset. His eyes searched for anything unusual in the dark. He could hear Abby welcoming Mac and Gretchen from down the hallway. Seeing nothing obvious, he returned to the house. There was no awkwardness as the foursome came together at the dining room table. Virtually everyone at the CMEX was aware that Chris and Abby had a burgeoning relationship outside of work. The fact that Mac and Gretchen had barged right into the middle of an intimate evening was overlooked by all, given the nature of the day's events. Besides, both Mac and Gretchen seemed beside themselves with glee at having an opportunity to observe the new relationship firsthand. Mac was Chris's oldest friend, and Gretchen was one of his closest colleagues. They were eating this up. Gretchen sat down and opened the Pelican case she'd brought with her. She pulled out a laptop with a 17-inch screen and a small video editing deck, while she and Abby made sense of the rat's nest of cords and got the two devices powered up and connected. Mac brought Chris up to speed on the rest of the day's activities aboard the McGregor. We completed two more transects this afternoon, a three-hour run up the south side of the canyon and a two-hour run to the north. Mac explained as he pulled out the cruise plan binder and pointed to the map on the front cover, where all the planned transects had been plotted before the cruise. Every research cruise had a cruise plan that detailed each day's operations, including what scientific instruments would be deployed, by whom, and where. By the end of the cruise, the map usually looked like an old pirate's treasure map, having been held so frequently throughout each day. That took us a bit beyond the 12-hour day we'd planned, Mac continued. But as I'm sure you know, the weather isn't looking good for tomorrow, so I figured you'd want us to make hay while the sun shined. Absolutely. That was a good call, Chris said. The timing worked out well, by the way. I was able to point to the ship from where I was sitting at the lodge this afternoon. The donors were impressed. How impressed? Mac asked. Am I going to be able to build the new bigger ROV we've been talking about? Chris exhaled and absent-mindedly pinched the bridge of his nose, right where the stitches were. Ouch. I don't know, Mac. We'll see. Just tell me what you found. Gretchen picked up the story. Well, after the first transect of the afternoon, we tasked Marisa, Travis, and Matt with reviewing the video while we conducted the second transect. And they followed the standard rapid assessment protocols? Abby asked. Yes, they reviewed the video at one-minute intervals and noted the type of seafloor habitat and any organisms they saw, both fish and invertebrates, at those intervals, Gretchen explained. And of course, we also encouraged them to note anything else of interest that they observe. It gives them an extra incentive to watch the video closely. While she was talking, Gretchen had plugged a small digital tape into the editing deck and was fast-forwarding through the video. Even though digital copies were made of every ROV transect, there were still multiple tape backups made as well to guarantee that no information was lost. Looking up the approximate time in the logbook, Gretchen reached the spot she'd been looking for and nodded to Mac. Into a canyon deep, Chris said, watching the small monitor. Is that Shakespeare? Abby asked. Not exactly. Chris offers that little cherub every time we start a dive. 
pretty deep. Mac chuckled. Anyway, so this is about 45 minutes into the second afternoon transect. Nobody caught it during the dive, or if we did, we didn't think about what we saw. Otherwise, we would have looked around a bit more. Chris tensed. He'd known that with him off the ship, the attention to detail during data collection would suffer. Gretchen jumped in as though she could see what Chris was thinking. But Matt spotted it right away when reviewing the tapes on our way back to the dock. She tapped the screen. There it is. Mac pointed too, and Gretchen paused the video. Both Chris and Abby leaned in to look more closely. Eventually, Chris asked, Go forward a bit now. And then a couple of seconds later, he said, Okay, now let's see it again, but this time start the tape a little further back so I can see the approach. Gretchen complied, and they all watched as the muddy wall of the canyon passed by the ROV's forward camera. Suddenly, an object popped into view on the camera. In the ROV's lights, it showed up as bright red. That looks like a hagfish pot, but... Chris said. It's too large, Mac interjected. And look how deep it's sitting in the sediment. That thing is too heavy for a pot. Hagfish, known more commonly as slime eels, were unattractive members of the taxonomic family Myxinidae. Usually around 18 inches in length, they had primitive eyes and a mouth that featured tooth-like projections. Hagfish were scavengers and had been found on submerged whale carcasses eating the carcass from the inside out. While nothing in the natural world was gross to a scientist, hagfish came as close as anything. Hagfish were captured using cylindrical pots or traps, which were deployed on the seafloor in muddy environments. Though not tasty, their skin served a variety of roles. Chris had had a hagfish wallet while in college that looked and felt much like leather. Okay, Gretchen, Mac said. Now show them the frame grab you made. Gretchen switched software on the laptop and brought up a close-up image of the end of the pot. The HD camera on the ROV allowed for high resolution, particularly when making frame grabs, which were essentially still photographs grabbed from the video. Look at that, Max said. That's no pot. That's the end of a barrel, Chris replied, then turned to Abby. See that? That's the pressure release valve for a barrel. Now we know why it's sitting so low in the sediment. There's something in it, Mac offered. And it's clean, too. No fouling at all, which means it was dumped fairly recently. Most man-made objects, anything from beer bottles to rubber tires to shipping containers, when tossed overboard, ultimately ended up covered by living organisms. These fouling organisms, like anemones and sponges, tended to attach to any hard surface they could find underwater. Rewinding the tape a couple of more times, Chris suggested, Look at the way the sediment is cleaved around the barrel. And you're right, Mac, that looks fresh. There's been little time for the disturbed sediment to settle. He looked up from the screen. Gretchen, please clip about 20 seconds of video around the barrel and bring that with a frame grab to the office tomorrow. Mac looked quizzical, so Chris added, Jace Hamilton is the sheriff's investigator who interviewed me this afternoon at CHOMP. We discussed what would explain the attack, and the only thing that made sense was that we might find something out there these guys don't want found. I think this may be it. Jace? Huh. Haven't seen him in a long time. How'd he look? Keeping himself together? He's meeting us at the dock at dawn on Thursday, so you'll get a chance to catch up with him then. What do we think is in that barrel? Abby said, thinking out loud. Could it be empty? Perhaps some kind of mistake that was dropped overboard?
Everyone looked at Chris, he assumed, because he was the one with the PhD. Or maybe just because they assumed he'd met the goons who'd presumably dumped the barrel. I suppose it could be empty. But why dump empty barrels offshore when I'm sure there's any number of places to dispose of them on land? And as Max said, the barrel is sitting pretty deep in the sediment. And if it was an honest mistake, why attack me and call attention to it? He thought for a few more seconds. No, there's something in it. And I'll bet there are more of them. Why go through the trouble of disguising barrels as hagfish pots if you're only dumping a few? He stared up at a large framed photo on the wall from a dive he'd done with his dad in Whaler's Cove on Point Lobos. Abby followed his gaze. If there's some kind of toxic waste in those barrels, if any of it leaks, we could be looking at a bad situation. Chris finished her sentence. We don't want any waste leaking into one of the West Coast's most biologically diverse ecosystems. He looked at Mac. We need more information. We need to figure out exactly what's down there. Roger that. Mac leaned toward Gretchen. On that happy note, I guess we should get out of here and let these two, er, um, friends be by themselves. Yeah. Gretchen winked at Mac. I don't want to be here when things get, you know, mushy. She was joking, but Chris could see her face flush with embarrassment. Abby smiled and Chris laughed. I've already beaten up two people today. I don't think a couple more would be too difficult. Nonsense, Abby said. I downloaded the full director's cut of The Abyss to my iTunes account. You guys have to stay to watch. Just happy to be here. Mac looked at Gretchen with undisguised mirth. That cherub never gets old, Chris said. I already mentioned cherub earlier, by the way, Mac said. Gretchen cut a quick glance at Chris for approval. He smiled and nodded. Okay she said. But someone is going to have to explain to me where the aliens come from. I just don't get it. 15. The weather the next day, as predicted, was suboptimal. Strong winds, combined with a tricky swell, made ROV operations impossible. The McGregor sat at the dock. Preoccupied with the threat of leaking barrels in Carmel Canyon, Chris awoke at 4.30 a.m. When none of his usual tricks were successful in returning him to sleep, he got up and ate breakfast. Fig sleeping on the couch in an inverted position, legs sticking up in the air, cracked one eye open and looked at Chris like he'd lost his mind. Yeah, you're clearly the brains in this operation, Thigo. Moving into his small home office, Chris found a voicemail message from a neighbor indicating that he had a package addressed to Chris, another thing to remember to do later. Unable to escape the multitude of thoughts going through his head, around seven, Chris went into work. Even if he was unable to do any concentrated work himself, at least he could supervise others. Late in the day, Chris was home from CMEX working in his garage, tinkering with one of his bikes when Gretchen pulled into the driveway. He nodded as she got out of the car. Having come out the other side of more than one challenging field project, words were frequently not necessary. Gretchen pulled up a folding chair and sat next to Chris. He was trying to adjust a difficult rear brake with little success. Looking at the grease all over Chris's hands and blood on more than one of his knuckles, Gretchen inquired, Don't they have people who get paid to do this kind of thing? Successfully, that is? Funny. Got any more where that came from? Chris didn't even look up from his work. He'd been fighting to concentrate all day, and working on his bike seemed to be helping. 
Oh, I got a lot of them. Been working with Mac too much lately. That why you came by? To try out some new material? No, I was just in the neighborhood and thought I'd drop in. I was on the boat most of the day and missed you at the office. Here's the mail that was sitting in your box. Anything new on the barrel? Thanks. A fair amount of speculation on the barrel, but no new facts. I don't think we'll know more until we get back down there. Gretchen had worked with Chris long enough to be undeterred by his lack of elaboration when he was in a bad mood. What about the guy who attacked you? The one who got away, that is? Anything turn up there? Actually not. My friend Jace from the sheriff's office hasn't contacted me yet, but he'll join us tomorrow if we're successful in pulling away from the dock. Perhaps we'll learn more then. My social media announced this morning that we have a work anniversary this week. Chris looked up. I try to stay away from social media, but I guess you're right. Have you finally had enough? You wish. No, I just, I don't know, wanted to touch base to see how things were going. We've all been so busy lately that I haven't had much time to talk with you. Chris wanted to say how much he valued their relationship, how important it was to him beyond the bounds of work, to reiterate how his relationship with her was now longer lived than any other save his childhood friends Mac and Jace to explain that he had awakened each morning for the past eight years excited about going to work because he worked with her, the kindest person he had ever known. But he fucked it up. He dropped the ball and opted for a sarcastic response. All clear on my end. He didn't even know what it meant, and he couldn't look at her as he said it. Before he could elaborate, Gretchen's phone rang. She stepped out of the garage to field the call. In a few minutes, she came back. The Dianas are all bent out of shape about some data issue. I don't understand what they're talking about, but I'd better go back to the boat to check it out. Chris nodded. He tried to salvage the conversation. Let's resume our discussion tomorrow. If there are things that you'd like to change or improve on, I'm game to consider it. Roger that, Gretchen said over her shoulder as she walked to her car. Now that's more like it. With the threat passed, at least for now, and Chris out of the hospital, Chris and Abby get to enjoy some time together for a quiet dinner. But what are friends like Mac and Gretchen for if not to crash such a dinner? Now the plot thickens as Chris and his team start to understand what all the violence might have been about. And what was going on with that guy in the grocery store? Tune in again to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.